0: Last week we looked at the end of chapter 9 and we saw that Noah had been safely carried through the flood, the judgment of God. The people um, had grown so wicked that God judged it, judged the whole earth. And we saw the flood, how that happened, the catastrophic uh, nature, totality of it. Um, So the flood comes, destroys the earth. It's Noah his wife and his three sons and their wives are saved as they pass through the judgment of God in the ark that God had told him to build. And we recognize that they get out on the other side last week. And when they got out on the other side of the flood, as the flood waters receded, we saw that God made promises again to Noah, that God refreshed his promises in some way. We saw the differences in those promises where in Genesis chapter 1, after Adam and Eve have been created, and he tells them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, exercise the dominion and authority over it, those kind of things. We see the differences now that the same command is given to Noah when it says in chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah, his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We see that same command is given to Noah that was given to Adam. You're to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. This creation mandate carries out. We also see that this new government, if you will, of the earth is going to be different. The animals are not going to come up and just let you name them anymore. There's going to be fear in them. There's going to be trepidation there. There's going to be a difference in the way you structure things. We also see that it gives a difference in how you to understand life and protect life and, and how if you take a life then your life must be required and so there would be some sort of way to to stymie evil in such a way, to, to keep evil at bay because what happened before was that evil took over and, and wickedness took over so God had to judge. Now he's trying to, to, to create in some way that wickedness won't take over again and so he creates this new government if you will and new rules to live by But remember that the the creation mandate is still in place. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so when we see at the end of chapter 9 that it may have been the fact that Noah seems to be the hero we're looking for. Remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. We're looking for the one who's going to crush this head of the serpent and end the one who disturbed the peace of God and so maybe that's Noah, maybe that's him, but then we recognize quickly, like we will throughout the Old Testament, that Noah is not the one because Noah is not going to be obedient and he's going to, to fail in his duties. And when he fails, he fails miserably. And then we see the action, as we discussed at the end of last week, the actions of his son, his son Ham. And so from that, Ham's son Canaan is cursed at the end of chapter 9. Then this gets us to chapter 10. And so we start to see in chapter 10, we see the three sons of of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember that Genesis is a genealogy. It's a genealogy that's lining it up here of who these generations are. And so... um, and in, in, in the importance there is it goes back again to the promise of God in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that there's going to come one from the seed of the woman who will crush the the serpent. So you're looking at the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And these two lines are going throughout. And so you see how this line matters. This genealogy matters and how it goes through. And so when you get to chapter 10, it's going to lay out this genealogy and it's going to lay it out as to or how it pertains to the nations and so in genesis 10 you have what we see as the nations that descend from noah it's a genealogy and really this comes in a way of blessing we see how um, noah's family grows and expands and he is fruitful and they do multiply right and so you see how they carry out this creation mandate they are fruitful and they multiply in Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, it starts out with. Really, when you start this genealogy, unlike the other genealogies, this one is not linear. Like in, G- in Genesis chapter 5, you just have one who has, a, who has one born and one born and one born. And you just kind of have this line that comes down like we would think of a Uh, genealogy or a tree, if you will, this line. In this one, in Genesis 10, it's a little bit different. It's it's presenting different persons. Sometimes it names different people groups. Sometimes it even names the places where they live. So it's spread out a little bit different. It's trying to show how Noah's children, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, disperse and fill the earth. So they go in different places. They go to different parts of the world and they get off there it sees how they're divided not just by not just by family but by ethnicity by geography by language even as you see in chapter 10 you see each one verse 5 there each one with his own language and it it says that again at the end in verse 20 each one with their own language and it says it again at the end in verse 31 each one with their own language so as it does the three sons It says that they're divided out in different places, in different parts of the world, even mentioned geography, spreading out, being fruitful and multiplying, fill the earth, and they each have their own language, right? So each one of them has their own language. It's spreading them out. The clans are spread. So here in Genesis 10, you have the birth of the nations, we talk about the nations in Scripture, and here's where the nations are born. You start to have the nations laid out. This is where differences in people groups come together. They come together at this place. So what happens when you, when you understand um, tendencies in people groups and the way people look and all those other things is because these family clans go together carrying their genes, carrying their traits carrying all those things and they stay together in different parts of the world and they're spreading out. Now, some of you may be looking at me confused and going, now, wait a minute. I thought something bad happened at Babel before this took place. And you are also exactly right. But here, I think what's happening, what Moses is doing is the same thing that happened in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You remember, In Genesis 1, he lays out the six days of creation, right? And this is how it happened. And then he pulls out in Genesis 2, like we talked about before, like the big map, you know, of this, how it takes place. And then in Genesis 2, he pulls out day 6 and says, now here's even a a deeper look at what happened in day 6. And so Genesis 1 is the big picture. Genesis 2 is kind of pulled out as this, as I talked about before, the big map in Genesis 1, you pull out in Genesis 2 that little, that smaller little inset map that shows you more detail about the city or something. It's the same thing that's happened here you get the big picture. You see the blessing that they were fruitful and they mul- and they multiplied and they filled the earth. They spread out through all over the earth and you have the formations of the nations. You have people groups formed. You have different languages spread out and this is what happened. You see the blessing of it. But then Genesis 11 comes back and pulls out and says, now here's how all of that took place. Does everybody understand? It's kind of like arguing from the bigger picture, the bigger now to here's how everything looked and how this actually happened. And it didn't happen in the easiest way possible. It didn't happen because the people were obedient to God. It didn't happen because they listened and they believed his promises. It didn't happen that way. In fact, it happened quite differently from that. It happened through the story of the Tower of Babel. God's people, or these people, did not spread out on their own. They didn't just buy into what God said when he says, be fruitful and multiply. In fact, they did the opposite. They stayed together. Now, the end is going to be they spread out all over the earth. But how does that happen? Why does that happen? And what does it look like for them to do it? What calls them to spread out? Instead of just believing the promises of God, something else took place. In fact, the people didn't believe the promises. They did the opposite of what God said for them to do, and God had to act in order for them to spread out. And that's what Genesis 11 is all about. The beginning of the nations take place that's laid out in chapter 10. We see that as a blessing in chapter 10, but we're going to also see now the judgment of God that came about because of it in chapter 11. Chapter 10 gives us Japheth, It gives us Shem. It gives us, and then through Ham, it gives us Canaan. I want to point out a few things before we get to chapter 11. You'll point out there in chapter 15, really, uh, the sons of Japheth are the distant lands. They go out the, the farthest, if you will, away from Babel and away from God's people. Then you have the sons of Ham, which move into you see uh, Cush, Egypt put, all of that is the uh is the closer range if you will around God's people. So looking at it distance wise, but you have this one son of Ham which is Canaan and remember it was Canaan who would be cursed because of the sin that Ham committed against his father in the previous chapter. So down in verse 15 Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites. I practiced this. And the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Abadites, the Zemurites, and the Hemathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon to the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebuim, as far as Lasha, These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, what's important about that is you will notice those names. You read through these names earlier, and you probably don't notice all the names of these peoples that you read, of these groups. But when you read through the name of Canaan, you notice some of those names because these names will be dealt with again. These are the ones. You remember what the promised land was called. I don't know if any of y'all do southern gospel, but one of the first songs I ever had, I knew all the words to, was Canaan land is just in sight. Y'all remember this? Well, think of, consider this, we call, they called the promised land Canaan land, because that's where the Canaanites lived. And so, as, remember, and I mentioned this last week, as Moses is writing the first five books of the Old Testament, he's on his way in the wilderness, going toward where? The promised land, right? He's on his way in the wilderness, going toward the promised land. So Moses is writing these five books, including Genesis, headed toward a land that's filled with who? The Canaanites. All of these names. Y'all are scared to mention the names too. Y'all just say, yeah, those people. And so we're headed to to the land that's filled with the Canaanites. So Moses has got a whole nation of people that he's marching through the wilderness, headed to Canaan, where the Canaanites live. All of these peoples are dwelling there. And what's about to happen in the land of Canaan? The nation of Israel is going to do what? They're going to go to war with them. They're going to go to war with them, and not only going to go to war with them, he's going to tell them to do such things as the ban. You go into the cities, don't take anything from them. You wipe them out, you wipe them clean, because why? This is the judgment of God, and God is going to use his people to bring about his judgment in Canaan. And so, when you look at this, Moses is receiving this inspiration, if you will, from God, And here it becomes what we call a theodicy, an argument for what God does. So in this theodicy, God is saying, we're going into this promised land. These people are not innocent, right? They're not just sitting back. In fact, these people are wicked and have been cursed from the beginning because of their wickedness, because of the sin of Ham that bore out into Canaan that has been cursed from it. In fact, if you look over in Genesis 15... In Genesis 15, God calls Abram. This is before he changes his name. He calls Abram, and he calls Abram. We'll talk about that in a minute. And as he's calling Abram, he takes Abram into the land of Canaan, and he says, What? This will be your land. This will be your land. He basically shows Abram all of the land in Canaan and says, This will be the land of your children. This is where they will dwell. He makes that promise. But then he says in verse 15, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, speaking of your children, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words... God is going to bring judgment on these people, and he's going to wait four generations in in order for that to happen so that their wickedness will be seen clearly. So he says, the reason why you're not taking this now is because these people here are wicked, and we're going to even wait four generations to prove their wickedness. They will not return to me. They will not come to me. So God here is saying through Moses, that we're going to a land, and these people who are wicked are here. Now we are going to take this land, which I promised to Abram, Genesis 15, which I promised to your forefathers, and which is filled with wicked people by which we are going to, you are going to carry out my judgment on them. And so... This becomes very important to understand the nature of what Genesis is doing, understanding the context of where it is written and what Moses is, is, is leading the people to do in the teaching here. Not only is he showing that there is a line of people, a genealogy, a line that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and the promise that God gave, that line is being kept for us. And we're a part of that line that's being kept that God will use to, to end the serpent crusher, if you will. Not only are we a part of that, we're also the children of God that have been chosen specially by him who he will use to carry out his judgment on the nations that are here. We also see this. So we see both things working together. Not only that, you see in chapter 10, he goes back and he does last, saving it till last because it's going to connect. He connects Shem, the uh, firstborn, although he's the firstborn, he's going to connect him last, to the father of the children of Eber, the elder of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, y'all get that one, and Aram. There's uh, Peleg, that's a good name if y'all wanted to use that. If y'all are looking for names for your kids, there's a lot of good names in here. Yeah, there's a lot of good names in here. Where was the one? One of my favorite ones. But anyway, there's a lot of good names in here. Um, Nimrod. There's the name Nimrod. If you wanted to name your kid Nimrod, it would be biblical. So uh, you have the, So you see Shem, because that's going to connect us, as we'll see in a minute, to Abram. And there's gonna, that's going to be important. Genesis 11 comes in then. We find out that the people didn't just freely be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In fact, the opposite happened. The people did what God didn't want them to do. The Tower of Babel enters in, and the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 demonstrates again the problem of sin. It demonstrates the problem of sin. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So remember, Genesis 10 says all of these nations had their own languages. So it's going back before Genesis 10, It's going back to explain what happened. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as a people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, all of them stayed together and settled in one spot. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So, what happens then is the opposite of what God had told them to do. God told them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But what happens is the opposite. They stay together, they form, in, they form together in one spot, in one location, and in that one spot, in one location, they begin to seek to make a name for themselves. In other words, there's a couple things going on. First of all, you see the people's disobedience for the command of God. You see their disobedience for God's command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But instead of doing that, they, they come together in one spot. They don't do what God called them to do. Now, let me sh- remind you of the nature of obedience that we saw with Noah. It had never rained before, right? We hadn't seen any of that. Noah would have no context or, uh, ultimately for a flood or what that would mean or what that would need. Yet he was told to build a boat. He's not a, boatman, a boat maker. I don't even know what you call those people. And, and he's, he's not doing any of that. But all of a sudden, Noah says, I'll do it, I'll build the boat. And when we read that passage, I made note of God revealing his purposes to Noah, and Noah's response is, yes. He does what God calls him to do over and over again. His obedience becomes clear. And what happens when he obeys? He's safely led through the judgment. God faithfully keeps him. That obedience is not necessarily what, what I don't want you to think is that we have to be obedient to be saved. But what I do want you to know is you have to be obedient to be saved. Does that make sense to everybody? Hopefully you can see what I'm doing there, because ultimately we know that God looked upon Noah and had favor and grace upon him, and Noah responded to God's favor and grace by obedience. If God looks upon us with favor and grace and we don't respond by obedience, what do we have? We have nothing. And so we see that there's both needed here in working together. By the way, the New Testament does this. We talked about this last week. Paul, you're justified by faith alone, not works, for no one is saved by anything that you do. It's just by faith alone. James, yes, you're justified by faith alone, but your faith is never alone. It's going to be always evidenced by works. And so what we see here is ultimately whenever we see obedience to God's command, we see God's faithfulness to cake and protect his people. Whenever we see disobedience, we see judgment, Right? that's exactly the difference here. The people aren't being obedient to God's command of being fruitful and multiply. They're they're doing the opposite of it. They're staying in one spot. They're not filling the earth. They're remaining in one place. And and by remaining in that one place, they're acting in direct disobedience to God. But don't we understand the herd mentality here? Y'all know what I mean? When you stay together and you see everybody else doing it, you start feeling safe that you're okay because you compare yourself to who? You compare yourself to others, not to God's rule and command. And so when that happens, we tend to find safety in and of ourselves. How many times have we heard our kids? I won't act like any of y'all have ever said it because y'all are all good and faithful people. How many times have we heard our kids, but my friend is doing it, right? How many times have we justified our actions because we look at what everybody else is doing and say they're doing the same thing? It's the same thing here. Whenever sinful people get together in their sin, their sin tends not to lessen but become greater because we build off of each other. And what we know in human history, what we know in human history is no matter how bad, you can think of the worst person in human history, they could always have been worse than they were. And so ultimately we see that sin devours a people. It's never satisfied. It's only going to make you worse. It only wants to make it more. It only wants to destroy more and more. It never gets enough. And that's exactly what we see here in Babel. The people stay together. And we're going to see this with what the Lord says. Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, he says. We see this nature of it. Their disobedience to the command, therefore judgment has to take place. But then we also see the failure that they have to believe the promise. Now, many different commentators have different views of what they were trying to do. They're building a tower up into the heavens. And so what does that mean for them? One, I think it could mean two things, and I think both things could be true. One, many believe that they're trying to build a tower in such a way as to enter into the realm of the gods. To enter into that realm so that they could have a seat at the table. So if God was trying to do something to them, they could reason with him. You know what I'm saying? Show themselves to be great, which is what I mean, make a name great for themselves. Show themselves to be great. Be seated amongst the gods or God and be able to have a parlay with them before he does anything like this crazy flood again, right? Let's talk about this first. So by building this tower, they would make their name great, and they would have to be considered. They would have to be looked upon and considered as part of the conversation, if you will. The other thing I think is happening is I believe, ultimately, they don't believe the promise of God. What did God say after the flood? I'll never do that again. I won't flood it again. What does it seem to me like they're trying to do? Well, you may say that, but... If you try to do it again, we're going to build a tower high enough that we can find safety away from that flood. Ultimately, they don't believe the promise of God. They think they can speak on God's behalf. They think they can parlay with him and maybe negotiate their terms of judgment, if you will. So they build a tower to show how great they are. And they don't believe the promise of God. If you try to flood this out again, we're going to have a tower that you're not going to be able to run over with water. We're going to build it into the heavens that will get us high enough that we'll be protected if you try to do that flood again. Really, that's the height of what sin is. Sin is the idea that we're on God's level. That we know best. We've said this from Adam, from Adam and looking at his sin. Sin's the idea that we know better than God. God says, here's the way it should be done. And we say, no, I think we're going to do that differently. We know better than you. That's the heart of what sin is. God's way or our way. So you have to believe if you're practicing in sin and doing um, things that are disobedient to God's way, you have to believe that you're smarter than God you know better than him. When God says lying is a sin, you say, no, I think in this situation, God, lying will be better for me. Never works out that way, but isn't that what you're saying? You're ultimately making the statement that I know better than you, God. It's the same thing that's happening here. We want to have a conversation with God about how we can negotiate the terms of our life, not just fall underneath his authority and understand we answer to him and him alone, but maybe we can negotiate our terms on how we want to live our life because we like it this way. He may say it's wrong, but let's negotiate this. Let's talk it through. And if you look at our society, that's exactly what the world does. They believe that they can negotiate the terms on how they want to live. We can decide what is right or wrong. When God has only shown us clearly that he is the arbitrator of truth, and he is the only one that has the authority to rule and to reign, and we are his creation that have to answer to him. That's not what they believed at Babel. They believe they can get on his terms and negotiate this thing. So don't look at these uh, people at Babel and and, and try to think we're better than they are. We still try to do the same thing often. And often, in the same vein, we don't believe his promises. His promises are yes and amen in Christ, but we we don't believe that'll come true. We don't trust him. I mean, he says things in the Bible. Let me go ahead and throw this one out at y'all, because some of y'all probably did this today. And I don't want to make you feel bad, so don't raise your hand. He says things in the Bible like, do not worry. Why? Because I'll take care of everything. You see what I'm saying? Worry is a disbelief in the promise of God. We don't believe he's in control. We don't believe he's watching over us, and we don't believe he's good. Worry is not believing God's promises, that he takes care of the birds and the flowers. He's going to take care of you by all means. Don't be anxious about anything. Trust the Lord. Seek first his kingdom. That's a promise, right? To worry is to not believe that promise. That's exactly what sin is. The heart of sin is we think we can negotiate the deal with God, and we know just as much as He does, and we don't quite believe the promises He's made to us. So let's negotiate. Let's talk about this. That's exactly what's happening at Babel. They think we can negotiate our own terms. Let's demonstrate our power. And when God sees what they're doing with one voice in one place, He sees what they're doing, and what are they doing? They're one voice, one place, making a name great for who? themselves. They're using their one voice. They're using their unity together to make a name great for themselves. They're trying to negotiate their terms with God and not fall under his authority, and they're not believing his promises. And when this takes place, God looks at them in pity, and he says, if we stay like this, if they stay with one voice, if they stay in this one place, there is no telling how wicked they will become. There's no end to it. It continues and it goes on and on. There's no telling. And so ultimately, God has to judge them. And what does it say? It says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused Babel becoming the the Hebrew word for confusion, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. First of all, we see clearly God's power. You think they're killing themselves, their backs are aching, complaining about long 12-hour days trying to build a tower to show how powerful they are, right? They're working their tails off, I'm sure, to try to come up with a plan to say, we're going to show God how great we are. And I'm sure over and over again, they're talking about the workaholics, and they're complaining about people who aren't doing their job. You know, that, that, that never happens. But I'm sure they're doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, God says, boom, you all have different languages. God shows his power. And there he confuses them. Here in Genesis 11 pointing this and putting this together with Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, it's presented as a blessing that the nations are there and that they're spread out. In Genesis 11, it shows that that blessing even came through God blessed something and made something good out of what was bad and wrong. It came through judgment. And the fact that there's many different nations and the fact that there's many different languages, while maybe not exactly here what we would think would happen, that is a blessing to us. It's a blessing to us. But we have the beginning right here in Genesis 11, what I would say to you, the beginning of modern history. It goes way back. But here's where the nations are formed. And when the nations are formed, and when different languages happen... You start to have those wars and you start to have those battles and you start to have everybody fighting over land and moving and going and and trying to pick out and choose what is theirs and setting borders up around them. You start to have the beginnings here of what we call modern history with the nations being formed. Here we see ethnicities being formed, family groups who have the same traits uh, and those traits are kept together, moved together to different locations so that those traits are pinpointed. And you can even see as they design this where those traits are found, and you see different aspects of the human race. All human, all come from Adam, but carrying out different traits, looking different from one another, moving into different places. All of this thing's happening here. And why does it take place? Why does this happen? It happens because of sin and judgment. And God makes the nations because he's trying to keep us from being more wicked and more sinful than we can ever possibly imagine. It's a blessing to us to curtail sin. You may look and say, well, it's causing all kinds of sin from different ethnicity groups fighting one another to different nations fighting one another for different things to be understood. You can see the world in turmoil. Yes. But what God was saying is if you would have stayed together in one language in one place, you would have become even more wicked. So it's a restraint even on sin. So we see the blessing of it, and we see what takes place. The problem you have is when you get to this point in Genesis 11, you sit here and go, this thing is a mess, right? I mean, you look at this. Again, remember, I said from the beginning, the good old days ended when? Genesis 3, you know what I'm saying? Like everything was good up until that point, and then everything went bad really quickly. And the good old days ended then. So even after coming through Noah, we see the same thing starts to happen here. We see humanity slip into sin. We see God have to deal with them in judgment and spread them out. And so ultimately, as you see the end of chapter 11, you start to go, how is God going to make anything out of this mess? How's he going to fix this? As one commentator said, Genesis 1 through 11 asks the question, right? Right? How can God redeem this mess? Look at what happened with Adam. Look at what happened with with, um, Cain and Abel. Look at what happened with Noah and his son. Look at what happened now with the people at Babel. How in the world is God going to redeem this mess? And at the end of Genesis 1 through 11, you kind of are left with these questions like, what is going to happen here? Graham Goldsworthy, a great expositor of the word, trying to understand it, he defines God's kingdom this way. The Bible is about God's kingdom. And God's kingdom can be found when you find God's people in God's place under God's blessing. That's where God's kingdom is. Adam and Eve, God's people, in the garden under God's rule and blessing, right? There's the the kingdom. Noah and his family together on the ark under God's rule and blessing. And you see this. All the way through, where are God's people? Where is God's place? And what is God's rule and blessing? We'll talk about this more as we lay it out. But when you get to the end of chapter 11, I don't know where any of them are. Where are God's people here? Which ones are there? There's none. It doesn't seem like there's anybody. All of them were in sin at Babel, all of them were dispersed. Where is God's kingdom? You know, where's his place? There's none. Who, where's his rule and blessing seen? There's none. How is he going to make a uh, uh, to fix this mess and keep his promise that he's going to bring one that will destroy the serpent and make everything that was wrong right again? How is he going to do it? So at the end of Genesis 11, we're left with a lot of questions. Everything changes at the end. Genesis 1 through 11 kind of seems like a different time period. You know, everything changes now. At the end of Genesis 11. How is he going to fix this? Well, I am going to get you to flip with me. That's the, that's the technical term for turning your Bibles. But flip over to Revelation chapter 7. I'll give you all a second. I know it's all the way at the other end. So I'll give you some time. Some of y'all, older generations. I'm not talking, I'm talking about myself have learned how to use your phone so adeptly so you feel real proud. You go to the search bar, hit Revelation, hit 7, and you're there and you're like, look at us, we're here. <laughs> Me, I'm just trying to read the numbers on this thing. <laughs> revelation chapter 7. The Apostle John, and remember this is one revelation, not a bunch of them. He is hearing someone count And they count before him. And then in verse 9, after he hears that one counting, which I believe God is counting his people to make sure everybody's present. After he hears that one counting, John looks. So he hears one counting, everybody's here, and then he looks. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. Now that's a big crowd. That's why I believe in the verses before, the 144,000 there are symbolic. Because we can count 144,000, right? That's a NASCAR race. That's no big deal. (laughs) But when John looks at him, he's like, this is a number that no one can count. No one can count. Remember the promise that was to Abraham? We hadn't gotten there yet, but I'm sure y'all read it. How many people, how many children will you have? Stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. A number no one can count. And here he says, I'm looking at God's people redeemed in the end, and it's a number that no one can count. From every nation, Genesis 10, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. Voice. That word voice there is singular. So what's happening here? All of the nations and the tribes and the peoples are all back together again in the same place, right? They're in one location again. And what are they doing? They're speaking with the same voice. One location and one language again, right? We know what that is, Southern English. But... but They're all back together in one spot. All the nations, all the tribes, all the languages have all joined back together in one spot. And they're speaking with one voice. But remember, that's exactly what happened in Genesis 11. And when they spoke with one voice in Genesis 11, who did they make a name great for? Themselves. We spoke with one voice and they made a name great for themselves. But here in Revelation 7, All the nations have joined back together. They've come together with one voice, and they're making a name great for who? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With one voice, all the nations have gathered back, and now what happened at Babel has been completely reversed. What happened there, the distrust of God's promises, the thought that they could do this on their own, all of that has been reversed. And now they recognize that the healing of the nations has happened and we are back together again with one voice again, making a name great not for ourselves but for our God and for the Lamb. The Lamb. What I'm trying to tell you is Genesis 11 to Revelation 7, the whole Bible is about how we go from those nations split up, confused, and sent out to gathered back together again around the throne with one voice. How do we get from all of them making a name great for themselves to all of them making a name great for God? How do we get from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7? And that's the story of Scripture. That's the story of Scripture. And I love what it says. It says, and to the Lamb. And to the Lamb. Just to give you a note. Whenever Jesus was crucified, buried, raised again. After a while, he ascended back to heaven. He told his people, he said, "Look, you need me to go because when I go, the Great Vicar of Christ comes back, the Holy Spirit, right? And that's better for you." And he may he said, "Stay here." I'm going to send the Spirit. So don't you leave until the Spirit comes. And what happens in Acts chapter 2? Spirit comes. And if you remember in Acts chapter 2, the disciples, apostles, had gathered together, and who was there with them in Jerusalem? The nations. Go back and read the first part of Acts chapter 2, and it talks about all the nations are back in Jerusalem. He says they were all amazed and astonished. So uh, verse five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout devout men from every nation under heaven. Y'all see that? From every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. To begin the church, something incredible happened. For a moment in God's taxonomy of history and his great promises that he he made for a moment in his own miraculous way, he reversed the effects of Babel. When the church came together for the first time, Babel was reversed. And now the nations were in Jerusalem and they spoke and they all heard what? In one language, in their own language. And so in this moment, as the church was sparked into existence by the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of Peter as he preached, what happens here, but God reverses Babel. And in reversing Babel, he gives a glimpse that through this gospel proclaimed of the Lamb who came, died, rose again, and now rules and reigns on the throne, through this one proclaimed, the nations will be healed. And they'll come together again. And for a moment here, he simply reverses Babel. And when he does, the church is spawned into existence and the church begins. And what are we longing for now? But for that reversal of Babel to be complete and the nations to be gathered back together again. And the whole story of Scripture is how that takes place. How is God going to fix the mess we created? How is he going to redeem the the mess that we as human beings have done, by the time you get to Genesis 11, there's nobody after him. There's nobody longing for him. There's nobody calling on him. There's no land for them to find. There's no rule and blessing that you can find anywhere. How is God going to fix this mess? And then Genesis 12 comes along. There was this one man in the Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram. And God called him. And from there we begin to see how God is going to redeem the mess that was created by humanity in their sin. And there we begin to get a glimpse of how he is going to bring together from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, a number that no one can count around the throne proclaiming the name of Christ. What we love and what we hope for is what we need to recognize is a few things. One, As, and I was making a joke, I I mean, maybe the language will be Southern English, I hope so. Anything else I fail miserably at. But what we have to remember, as here, as we gather in this room, this great crowd, I can't count y'all, so whatever. But a great crowd that's gathered, what we have to remember is we're just a small little piece of what God is doing in this world. And when we get around the throne, I don't want y'all to be caught off guard. If for a moment, if for a moment, you can take your eyes off the, thro- off the king on the throne, y'all know what I'm talking about, and you look around you to see who's there, don't be surprised when you realize that we're not the majority. That there's probably far more Chinese brothers and sisters that are in there than we know. Some speculate that the underground church in China, even now, is a greater number than the number of population of people in America. Some 300 million, 300 to 350 million. There's 1.7 billion of them there. We want to look around and we realize we're, we're just something part of something greater. The quicker we can realize we're just a part of something greater there, The quicker we can realize that we're just part of something greater now, the more useful we can be in the kingdom of God. We're just a small piece of what God is doing. And so what we're to do is to rejoice and celebrate and help to reverse that, that, that curse that happened at the nations to make better what was made wrong and to, to proclaim Christ Jesus in such a way that, that when we get around the throne, it's not going to be a new song we sing, but the same old song we've been singing by God's grace. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That's what we long for. And we realize we're a small piece to do our role in a greater glorious good, The sooner we can realize that, the more useful we will be for God and his kingdom. The more we get off of our simple preferences of how we like it and realize that's not what's most important. What's most important is that God is glorified in all that we do. The more we can get off of those things and realize what we are about is something far greater and bigger than you can ever possibly imagine, the sooner we can get that, the more useful we become to the kingdom of God. And this whole Bible that we have lays out and tells a beautiful story, not how we found God, but how he has come to find us and redeem us and save us. And so therefore, from now until eternity, our song is the same. No glory to ourselves, no more my God, do I bring glory to my name, but to his name forever. Because we're going to not stop singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. To the Lamb. This is a good book, by the way. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The good book, y'all know what I mean? And it's a beautiful picture of how we've created a mess in our own sinfulness and how God redeems it and makes what was a mess beautiful again, makes what was wrong right again. And every single one of our lives, by the way, is a testimony to God's redemption of taking what was wrong and making it right again. So we thank God for this picture, and we look forward to that day around the throne, and we rejoice that by God's grace we can be a part of these things by trusting in him and obedience and faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather around your word. Thank you, Father, for your son who took everything that was wrong and made it right again. And God, tonight, as we sit in this room, help us to be reminded, Father, of your glorious promises and and, and all that you're doing in this world. And help us to recognize that we get to be a wonderful part of what you are seeking to accomplish. So help us to be faithful, God. Not exerting ourselves, but calling out your name. Not just pushing our agendas, Father, but proclaiming the name of Jesus and what he is and who he is. Father, help us in all of these things to trust you and follow you, knowing that you are making all things new. God, thank you for opportunities we have to serve and to give, even tonight as we consider our brothers and sisters in Louisiana who are doing that. Father, help us to come alongside and be able to serve and give there so that your name will be glorified in that place. All of this we ask in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. We'll see y'all Sunday, big day Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. Put it all down. If you're able to give tonight, I think we got guys at the door. Love y'all. Y'all have good night.